Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health-related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice. Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is your host, Arden Castle, and today I'm joined by Renee Lavinghouse, Dr. Terry O'Toole, and Dr. Lanita Wright, the guest co-editors of the two HPP supplements with the CDC's Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity. The supplement presents accounts of projects designed to change policies, systems, or environments to increase community access to healthy food and safe opportunities for physical activity. Some of the projects are big ones creating significant infrastructure changes or ambitious community engagement. On this podcast, we've been talking with authors from the two HPP supplements that have come out over the past eight months. The projects that they've told us about have all been fascinating, especially since somehow they managed to continue working on ambitious and important policy systems or environmental changes in the midst of COVID. And today we wrap up that series by talking with the people that imagined and supported and funded it all, the guest co-editors of the two HPP supplements. And they're going to help us explore what they term the five priority actions to prevent chronic disease, practitioner wisdom, and pivoting during a pandemic, and the highs and lows of putting together two journal supplements, presenting many papers by a ton of authors, many of them writing for the academic journal for the very first time. But before we get started, I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves and share where they're calling in from. So, Renee, will you get us started? Hi, sure. Thanks, Arden. I'm Renee Lavinghouse, and I am the translation team lead in the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, Obesity at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I am calling in from Palatka, Florida, which is a little rural town in the middle of Gainesville and Jacksonville, Florida. Hi there, Arden. Terry O'Toole. I serve as chief for the Program Development and Evaluation Branch in the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity at CDC. And I'm calling in from CDC headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. Thank you, Arden. And hello, everybody. Lanita Wright here. I am a faculty member at Kennesaw State University in the public health program, newly tenured as of a couple of months ago. So I'm proud to share that. And I am currently calling in from Mobile, Alabama. Good to see everyone. Fantastic. And I love that we we're able to connect all across the country and so exciting. And thank you so much for your work on this project, but to sort of set the stage in the context, Terry, I'd love to know about the DNPAO programs, those five priority actions and the significance of the turn to PSEs. That's a lot of acronyms. So can you kind of break down this whole project and let us know what's the context here? Well, thank you, Arden. And it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. And first, I'd just like to begin by thanking my two amazing colleagues on this project, Lanita and Renee. Without their leadership and effort, this project simply would not be the success that it is. So yeah, context. Let me begin by, I guess, kind of answering the question, why physical activity and nutrition? We know that poor nutrition and physical activity play a key role in the rising rates of disease, such as obesity and diabetes in our country, which in turn place a large financial burden on our health systems. For example, annually, we know that obesity costs our healthcare system $173 billion. 
physical inactivity costs our healthcare system $117 billion annually. So having obesity puts people at risk, not only for serious chronic diseases and the risk of severe illness, but it's also very cost prohibitive. And the burden of obesity and other chronic diseases negatively affect our nation's businesses, economy, as well as military readiness. So CDC's Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, Obesity, we lead the nation in public health efforts to prevent chronic diseases at every stage of life by promoting good nutrition, regular physical activity, and a healthy weight. We do this by working in places where people live, learn, work, and play. I also want to set the context by sharing that DNPAO is dedicated to removing barriers to health linked to race or ethnicity, ability, education, income, or where you live. We know that addressing these efforts will help all people live healthier lives and avoid chronic diseases. So in short, improving nutrition and physical activity directly reduces the risk of many of the leading causes of death and disability in the US. And I have some great news to share with our listeners today. At CDC, in the Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity and Obesity, we know what works to address these serious health concerns. At CDC, we've examined the evidence over time, and we know what works to address and reduce these chronic diseases. So I'd like to take a minute just to share the five key actions that states and communities can take to prevent these serious chronic diseases. You know, Arden, there are so many wonderful benefits of healthy eating and physical activity. Simply feeling better, improve quality of life, healthy growth and brain development, reduced anxiety, improved immunity, improved quality of sleep, reduction or prevention of obesity, reduced blood pressure, reduced risk of heart disease, type two diabetes and some cancers. So the benefits are amazing. So as I said, we have five key actions that states and communities can take to help families in places that frankly need it the most. The first action is make physical activity safe and accessible for all. This action focuses on increasing what is called active transportation by expanding what we call activity-friendly routes to everyday destinations. So what does that mean? Let me give you a walk to school example. Suppose you live in a neighborhood where you want to walk your kids to school just like you did when you were their age. Only today, your neighborhood is surrounded by cars that travel too fast, or there's not a safe route for you to walk to school. We work with communities to improve their land use policies and plans to create activity-friendly routes by connecting places where it's easier for you to walk to school, to bike to work, to access the bus, so that you can get to where you live, learn, work, or play. This action is also supported by CDC's Active People Healthy Nation to help 27 million Americans become more physically active by 2027. And you can see more about that program at CDC and search Active People Healthy Nation. The second action is make healthy food choices easier everywhere. We do this by focusing on 
improving the healthfulness of the food and beverage offerings wherever food is sold, distributed, or served. This means working with our communities to work with their state and local and community settings in cafes, hospitals, food banks, universities, Lenita knows this, to apply nutrition and procurement guidelines that improve the nutritional quality of the food and beverage options available. Related to that example is coordinate the uptake of existing fruit and vegetable voucher incentive and produce prescription programs. We all know the importance of eating fruits and vegetables. They simply improve all those, all those benefits I mentioned earlier. So what are our produce prescription programs? These programs improve access, affordability, so that families can actually eat fruits and vegetables. And our recipients implement this strategy by promoting existing programs to reach those hard to reach communities, those who need it the most, those with limited access to affordable fruits and vegetables, people living in rural areas, tribal communities and neighborhoods where residents have lower incomes. The fourth action is to strengthen obesity preventions for early care and education settings. We know that we have to start early in order to have an impact on chronic disease. And so this strategy focuses on preventing obesity by creating healthier environments for young children in care. High quality early care and education programs we've seen can positively impact a child's health, well-being, and educational achievement, as well as socioeconomic outcomes later in life. So we work with states, communities, and ECE facilities directly to increase access to healthy foods, farm to ECE, breastfeeding support, and opportunities for physical activity to prevent obesity for those children enrolled in those ECE settings. And the fifth action is spread and scale of family healthy weight programs. This action actually focuses on treating child obesity through family-centered programs. These programs are important because it's these types of programs that can reinforce the healthy lifestyles and behaviors for families and children by providing educational and cultural changes and improvements to their nutrition, physical activity, and behaviors so that they can obtain a healthy weight and experience some of those other health benefits that I mentioned earlier. We know that many children and families cannot access a clinic or a, such a program in their community. And so our recipients work to address those barriers for access and participation, which include addressing insurance reimbursement, program availability and delivery systems, as well as practitioner awareness and referrals, addressing things like bias and stigma and supporting such things as resources or staff. And so this is a program that focuses on addressing the, the managed child obesity, but also has health benefits for the entire family. So Arn, you referenced a minute ago, the importance of policy systems and environmental change strategies. I think when folks hear these five actions, one thing they'll notice in particular about these actions is that they are systems-based actions or policy-based actions designed to improve the environments 
in which children, adults, and families can access healthy choices or live in places where it's easier to be healthy. And so these efforts, commonly called policy systems, environmental supports, or PSE supports, and these are different than the individual behavior approaches that we typically see through one-to-one -one education or counseling programs. These types of efforts, these policy systems and environmental change efforts really have large-scale population-level cultural change impact. Now, admittedly, they do take more time to take real effect. So we have to be patient. We have to, you know, we have to keep at it to make sure that the policies that were employed in the past, we might need to change those because they might not be fair for everyone. And so these types of changes are what we've seen is that they do take more time to take real effect. However, we've also seen the effect is well worth the effort because the effect is sustainable over time. So if I may, Arden, let me take a moment to just talk about how these changes can happen in communities that need it the most. In our division of nutrition, physical activity, and obesity, we have three amazing public health programs that work with communities across the country on these five actions I just described. The first public health program is CDC's High Obesity Program, or what we call HOP. It's a nice active acronym, isn't it? As I mentioned, these programs focus on where need is greatest. So the CDC's HOP program provides funding and technical assistance to states that have counties with the highest burden of obesity. Currently, we have funding to support 15 states across the country. HOP funds land-grant universities to partner with their community extension services to make healthy food choices easier and make physical activity safe and accessible for all. Our HOP recipients work in counties that have greater than 40% of adults with obesity, so it's a high burden program. We know that residents in these communities that are mostly in rural areas have less resources, less access to healthy foods, and fewer opportunities to be physically active. However, over the last few years, our HOP recipients' impact to date has been nothing short of fantastic. Over 300,000 people have increased access to places where they can be physically active, and nearly 400,000 people have increased access to healthier foods. I want to remind you that these places are very, very rural, so not a lot of population density. So the impact is no less significant here. The next program is CDC's Racial and Ethnic Approaches to Community Health Program. Since 1999, DNPO's REACH program has funded recipients to use community-based participatory approaches to identify, develop, and disseminate what we call culturally tailored actions. So they take our five actions, they tailor them to the needs of the communities, and they implement them. Currently, we have funding to support 40 community-based organizations, although I must tell you, Arden, that we had about 350 applications for this program, and we could only fund 40. So there's great need and great interest from so many communities across the country ready to take these five actions to their communities. And this program also has been incredibly successful. To date, in our current funding cycle, 
greater than 8 million people have been reached to increase access to places where they can be physically active, and nearly 3 million people have been reached through increased access to healthier foods. Amazing progress. The third program that we do at CDC and DNPAO is the State Physical Activity and Nutrition Program, or SPAN. So again, if you think about these three programs, HOP, REACH, and SPAN, very active acronyms. We love that. SPAN funds public health agencies to make physical activity safe and accessible for all, make healthy food choices easier, and make breastfeeding easier to start and continue. Currently, we have funding to support 16 states, and although just like our REACH program, that the demand exceeds the available funding, as all 50 states and several territories have applied for this funding in the past. As I mentioned earlier, Arden, each of these programs, SPAN, REACH, and HOP, also support CDC's Active People Healthy Nation to initiate to help 27 million more Americans become more physically active by 2027. So that's a great program to support these SPAN, REACH, and HOP programs. And I'll close just by saying, just like REACH and HOP, our SPAN recipients have demonstrated amazing impact and success. The SPAN program, over 18 million people reached through the increased access to places where they can be physically active and greater than 7 million people reached through healthy nutrition standards. Sadly, while there's been incredible impact, the current resources dedicated that we have to funding states, communities, and land-grant universities to implement what we know works are limited. This is related to the level of available DNPO investments, not the demand, as I've said earlier. DNPO resources currently equivalent to about 31 cents investment per American per year may be unlikely to prevent obesity among at-risk Americans or reduce the racial and ethnic disparities we know exist in the national burden of obesity. As such, more commitment is needed to adequately spread and scale what we know works, what we know is needed to address chronic disease prevention. Finally, I do think we have a reason for optimism. Recently, the president hosted the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health and expressed pillars from the conference that reflect CDC's five actions I described earlier. In addition, the White House Conference on Hunger, Nutrition, and Health Strategy included a desire to expand CDC's SPAN program to all 50 states and territories. So there's definitely hope for the future. And Arden, I'll just close my comments by expressing CDC's Division of Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Obesity sincerest gratitude for the amazing accomplishments our SPAN Reach and Hop recipients have had. As you mentioned earlier, we all lived through the pandemic. We all saw firsthand how devastating the impact was, particularly on public health professionals. The public health professionals with our SPAN Reach and Hop programs worked tirelessly through the pandemic. And they continue today to implement those five actions and the work they do with families and communities. It's really helping those who need it the most. And what's even more amazing is one of the reasons we're talking today is how many of our SPAN Region Hop recipients made the additional effort to share their great work through the scientific writing process with the Health Promotion Practice Journal. And I have to tell you that the full circle support and partnership of our friends at Sophie 
and at the journal have really made this possible. And I know we're going to hear from Lenita and Renee in just a minute, and I'll just close by sharing the words of one of the authors, because you said some of these authors were first-time authors, and Teresa Tejada really got my heart with what she said. She works at the National Kidney Foundation, and in her words, she said, this was an incredible experience for me. I don't have an advanced degree. I never thought I'd participate in the peer review process. I learned so much, and I really feel proud and honored to share our accomplishments with what we've been doing on the ground with public health practitioners. Thank you so much for ushering this opportunity with all the DNPO grantees. Well, that kind of says it all, doesn't it, Arden? It really does. Thank you so much, Terry, for helping us get our minds wrapped around all these fantastic programs. And to kind of echo what I was hearing, there's this high cost of obesity financially and also socially. And I love that there's this prevention focus with this evidence-based research because we know what five actions states and communities can do. And this all has to do with elevating the existing programs or sustaining the environment for them to thrive. And while this requires time and diligent evaluation, it's shown that millions of people have been reached and been benefited, and we still have a demand that's outweighing our current resources to support these programs. And so exciting and positive hope for the future in terms of sustaining these programs. But I want to pivot and now that we know sort of this background of what our goals are and that we need to aspire to, Renee, can you tell me more about this practitioner wisdom? We've got all these folks who are writing in on these papers, and I want to know more about this practitioner side and the program infrastructure. Yes, and to really kind of piggyback on what Terry said, our, it is about infrastructure, and we have a real emphasis on functioning program infrastructure with our recipients, with our 62 initial recipients that we funded. I say 62 initial recipients because now, right now we are funding 71, but we started back in 2018 with 62 span, reach, and hop recipients, Arden. And that's what I'll be talking about today. In 2018, we had those recipients, and like Terry said, they were states, universities, and communities, all working to advance the nation's chronic disease prevention programs. And they're working under our five-year cooperative agreements. And of course, we were collaboratively working with them, and they were fully engaged in program implementation when the impact of COVID-19 presented in 2018. No one saw this coming. And it was not something we could have anticipated during the implementation period. So it wasn't something that we wrote about or had the you know, TA plan for. And this is where we can see how functioning program infrastructure is really essential and critical to the work of public health and chronic disease prevention. Program infrastructure supports the capacity to implement and sustain initiatives that achieve public health outcomes. The evidence-based model of program infrastructure that we talk about in both of these supplements is the component model of infrastructure or CMI. We're gonna throw another acronym out there for you. It outlines five core components, network partnerships, multi-level leadership, engaged data, managed resources, and responsive plans and planning. 
and it has two supporting components, strategic understanding and operations that are necessary to develop the capacity to achieve health outcomes and sustain initiatives within a variety of contextual influences. And uh, numerous of our manuscripts that are published, you know, talk about this and how this infrastructure helped them pivot and adjust and continue serving the public and the communities that they're in and achieve public health outcomes. Our SPAN reach and HOP recipients maintain and enhance existing infrastructure, and they were required to have infrastructure when they were funding, such as network partnerships in the form of established coalitions and other partnerships, and to have these strong relationships in the community and being trusted messengers. This is something we look for when we're awarding these funds. As Terry mentioned, the demand is much greater than the resources we have. And so this is something that, you know, we look for in the ones that we award, that they have to have multi-level leaderships, you know, that's leadership at the lateral level and then up and down, champions in the community, engagement with their data in the form of data management plans, needs assessments, and evaluation plans. So these recipients maintain and enhance their infrastructure to address social determinants of health, to reduce barriers, to promote health and wellness for all, and to seek to reduce disparities experienced in nutrition and physical activities. And it's this program infrastructure foundation that are really allowed our recipients to pivot and remain nimble during these unprecedented times. The recipients were able to leverage their infrastructure components to respond to the pressures that COVID-19 placed on the environment and the implementation context. The recipients experienced barriers to program implementation due to COVID-19 stay-at-home orders, social distancing closures, and redirection of efforts. Some of the key components to settings such as early care education, ECE that Terry mentioned, and work sites were temporarily closed. Through distribution change disruptions, along with increased demand for food distribution services, introduced challenges to plan nutrition activities. Staff working in state and local health departments were reassigned to work on COVID response activities, and some contract staff turnovers also occurred. Despite barriers experienced, SPAN REACH and HOP recipients exhibited innovation, ability, and flexibility not only to address changing community health needs, but also to redirect implementation efforts to continue critical programs during the pandemic. The actions recipients demonstrated to continue chronic disease program efforts while addressing COVID pandemic challenges can be reflected throughout what I would say the five themes that play out in the supplements, including that of functioning program infrastructure, which is very prominent in the manuscripts published in both of these supplements. And these five themes, I would say, are leveraging trusted partnerships and priority communities, leveraging existing systems, leveraging virtual technologies, leveraging funding flexibilities, and leveraging community knowledge. So here, Arden, I wanna give you an example of leveraging existing systems and trusted partnerships. 
the Southern Connecticut State University REACH program was really able to demonstrate their ability to pivot and remain nimble and flexible during the pandemic by leveraging their infrastructure components, especially working with their network of partners to quickly address food assistance needs exasperated by the pandemic and collaborate with the Coordinated Food Assistance Network to implement a pantry to pantry initiative to meet the needs of homebound families due to COVID. This effort resulted in over 11,500 free weekly home deliveries of needed food and over 3,200 volunteer hours by August 2020 alone. Do you realize that 55% of households stated that this was the first time they had accessed a food pantry and what that means, demonstrating that increased need and economic hardship during the pandemic. And what was really fantastic here, and again, demonstrating the need for and how great it is to focus on developing and maintaining that critical element of program infrastructure. The mayor of New Haven recognized that the Southern Connecticut State University REACH program already had the functioning program infrastructure in place for a food distribution network. And therefore, the city did not need to start a new program to serve their city during the crisis. The city therefore partnered with the REACH program to leverage their infrastructure to implement a food bank system for the city. And isn't that just fantastic and really shows how focusing on public health program infrastructure is truly a win-win for everyone. This funding opportunity by CDC allowed recipients to maintain and enhance program infrastructure to support essential program health functions in a way that process awards could not achieve. In a time of global pandemic that no one saw coming, this provided exactly the foundation resources that programs needed to be nimble and pivot to respond to the needs of their states and communities. Supporting program infrastructure is critical to be able to respond to opportunities and times of crisis. And I'll turn it back to you, Arden. Thank you so much, Renee, for helping paint this picture of the need and how this resource was being used because I'm hearing that there were these 62 initial recipients, but then additional folks afterwards as well. And just really fantastic how the importance of functioning program infrastructure foundation is allowing these recipients to remain nimble through COVID disruptions, but then also that it's providing these struts that can allow them to respond to these needs and also these opportunities. Without this program happening, these communities wouldn't have been able to accomplish what they did, and especially in such a time of need. So a wonderful alignment of resources given the situation. And so I'm just so thankful for this program happening and for all of your work and the thought process and the evidence behind this program because we knew it would be successful. And so I think that's just one of the best pieces of this. And so I want to pivot now to Lenita and ask, because you're one of the representatives of health promotion practice on this guest editorial team and had a growing role in the writing workshops that supported these author teams making their way through developing a journal manuscript. Can you tell us what that process was like working directly with the folks who were submitting their papers? 
Absolutely. And thank you, Arden, for having me today. And again, I just want to thank our um, esteemed colleagues for joining us and our sincerest appreciation to the CDC for their efforts in supporting these authors. I just want to start with saying, wow. I mean, the authors who participated in this writing workshop were truly tremendous. We had so many first-time authors to join the teams who didn't really know where to start in the process. And there was a lot of angst at the beginning of the process. And we saw these team members and the teams as a whole really blossom over time. And so I would just want to start first with just some kudos to all of the authors who participated in this process, because we know that it was um, may have at times been overwhelming. And maybe we asked quite a bit during the writing workshops, but they produced some amazing work. So let's back up just a little bit and share with our listeners that this process started in 2021 and in early, early 2021, the Society for Public Health Education, or SOFI, hosted complimentary three-part workshops. And essentially in this three-part series, which was titled the Introduction to Publication webinar series, this was open to all 62 of those CDC DMPAO funded programs that Renee just mentioned. And these authors could join and learn more about the publishing process. They could learn more about health promotion practice. And more importantly, they could really learn from people who have published before and give some words of wisdom to these authors as well. And so there were subject matter experts who participated in the process from CDC, from Sophie, and from HPP. And with this process of bringing multiple different voices and experiences together, the people who participated in the webinar series were truly introduced to and able to engage with multiple perspectives and experiences and advice, right? And so the the joy and the beauty in that having that initial three-part series was really to provide an appetizer to these teams to learn more, get a taste to learn more about the writing process, but then also, of course, to invite them to dig a little bit deeper in our writing workshop, which would have been offered later in that same spring of 2021. So towards the end of this webinar series, the authors were invited to join us. Again, these subject matter experts, some additional folks joined the team. They were able to apply to join the writing workshop, the subject matter experts or SMEs reviewed their applications and learned more about their data they've already collected, where they were in the writing process, and how the teams could be helped or assisted throughout the writing workshop. The SMEs chose the teams who would participate in that initial workshop and then move forward with inviting them to participate again in that writing workshop, and that was in spring of 2021. I just want to mention briefly that during the process, and our, our listeners may be wondering, well, what did you all talk about, right, during the, the writing workshop? And we talked about things such as demystifying the writing process, learning more about health promotion practices mission and the vision for the field. Also, how do you elevate the practitioner voice and what does that look like in written form? Also, they learned about the various components of the article and how do you write each of those components 
sentence so that your readers will want to read a little bit more about what you have to say. We know that oftentimes practitioners are doing amazing work in the field, but may need a little additional support or dedicated time to be able to write these articles in a way that folks will take the time to read what they have actually done in the field. So at Health Promotion Practice, we really do pride ourselves on elevating the practitioner voice and focusing on the professional experience, publishing papers that are written by practitioners and for practitioners. So that practitioner wisdom that Renee and Terry have already spoken to so eloquently, we really want to elevate that in health promotion practice. So this was honestly a gift and a pleasure to be able to work with CDC, of course, and Sophie to be able to elevate these practitioner voices. Throughout the writing workshop process and during that spring, I want to say spring semester, of course, I'm a faculty member. So during that spring semester, right, we were able to really connect with these teams and learn more about their needs and perhaps maybe some things we want to add throughout the process. And so I want to just mention this briefly for those of you who may be considering creating your own workshops or webinar series really think about what your participants have learned throughout your process and don't be afraid to be nimble and adjust throughout that process. I mentioned that because that spring of 2021 was truly a learning experience for all involved. So for the authors and then also for all of the SMEs as well, it was truly a, a meaningful learning experience. I also want to mention that we had eight teams with a total of 22 participants who participated with us during that spring workshop of 2021. And then we were able to, and again, had the gift of being able to have the funding that was provided by CDC DMPAO to be able to have an additional workshop that was offered later in the fall. And we had six teams, 25 total participants during that fall workshop. And these participants came from each of the different programs that Terry and Renee have already spoken to, but to remind our listeners, they came from SPAN, from REACH, and from HOP. There were three SPAN teams, three from REACH, and eight from HOP. And so we really had a, a diverse group of team members, a diverse group of projects that were able to be fleshed out and work through during this writing workshop process. In addition to that, I know I've mentioned this briefly, but in addition, this workshop was complimentary for those team members, right? So this was a funded writing workshop, and the participants were able to join this process and learn without having to pay anything. And I want to, again, just elevate that and our appreciation for the funding that was provided by CDC for these efforts and to reduce that burden and that barrier that could exist for those who may not have the resources to fund these, these sort of efforts for themselves or for their team members. In addition to that, I want to share briefly that during this process and serving as a writing coach, and of course, being one of our representatives from health promotion practice, this was a reminder. It took me back to writing some of my initial papers, right? And my first, first author paper that was actually about a research project that I had done was submitted to health promotion practice. And I recall writing this paper and thinking it was the best paper ever. I knew my research was amazing uh, and I could not wait until it was published. 
And I recall uh, members of my team said, I know it's going to be good, but just brace yourself for the feedback that you will receive from the reviewers. And I thought, okay, it's, I, I just don't even see what else I could have done differently. And in all the time, all the effort that was poured into that initial draft, because now I look at it like a draft, right? When you submit something to a journal, the time and effort that went into writing that initial draft, it was something, right? However, the number of revisions, the, the amount of time it took to really go through and see that paper to publication was still quite a feat, right? Of several more hurdles. And I say that to say without the support and the coaching from the editor, Dr. Kathleen Rowe, who took the time to meet with me via Zoom to go over my paper line by line, I could see that it was marked up quite heavily with her, her ink. And she was showing me what she wanted to see from that last revision. I thought, oh my goodness, I cannot believe one, an editor has taken the time to do this with me, but how much I appreciated this coaching process because I learned so much about offering grace, but then also offering rigor and that ex bringing that expectation to the authors that you are coaching. And so that's, that's where my mind went during this process is, of course, offering grace, but then also being sure to elevate rigor throughout this writing process. So I still go back to commending the authors for working with us throughout this process. I know sometimes the process may have been a lot of ups and downs and highs and lows, but we did see 11 of the 14 total teams all the way to publication. And so we are so proud of these teams for moving all the way through the process. We had several, as I mentioned before, who were first time writers, first time authors, I should say first time authors for a published paper in this sort of manner. And so being able to see them shift from reports to articles was also very rewarding. And one other thing I wanted to mention briefly is that during this process, again, in elevating the practitioner voice, and this is something I've mentioned before with you, Arden, I know we've talked offline about this as well, but I noticed quite a bit of imposter syndrome. And I just want to just mention briefly, if any of our listeners are thinking, I could never do this, or this is way beyond me, or maybe I don't have the right team pushed all of that aside, right? Because many of our teams thought they would never see their papers reach publication and they were, some folks were battling imposter syndrome. I too still battle imposter syndrome. And so it is really important to keep in mind that you have gotten to this place because you are more than qualified, you are more than capable to do the work that you have been called to do. And so sometimes we may need a little coaching and assistance along the way to get things in a certain format, um, but that doesn't mean that you are not capable of doing the thing that you want to do. Um, so I just wanted to, to end my, my comments with that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lenita. And I love that this writing process was able to bring professionals and different experiences together to demystify this writing process. And that allows us to elevate the practitioner voice at no cost to participants because it was funded. And so I think it's just so awesome. And to echo what I'm hearing about this piece about mentorship, so, so important to have that mentorship in the writing process and be able to have those expectations set as you said, you had a team behind you that was saying, all right, brace yourself. It's going to be a rough review process, no matter how beautiful you think your paper is going in and to allow 
that space for these new or first time writers to have those struts and support to say, all right, we're going to buckle in. It's going to be a process and that you don't need to experience imposter syndrome here. Obviously, you're not going to be perfect at writing a paper for your first paper. That's not a mark down on your own ability to write. It's just how you pose your paper in order to be a journal article. And so I want to thank you so much for helping create that process where folks could feel and be successful. I did want to, you know, add to what Lenita was saying, if that's okay, because it's so, so important to get this practitioner voice out there or we're missing very, you know, big gaps in the literature without having that practice wisdom out there and shared with other people. And when we evaluated the writing workshops, one of the biggest things that the participants said was having this dedicated time and the coaching to be able to get their voices out there because this is not their main job. They're not academics sitting there where, you know, they're, they're judged on how many manuscripts they get published. So they have, you know, other full-time jobs and they just stuck with it through the numerous revisions and stuff. We had 42 submissions for the first supplement. And that's where, you know, went back to Terry and I said, Terry, we have 42. Okay. Not just 42, 42 great submissions. I need some more money. I need to have a second supplement. And that's how we wound up with two supplements and not one. We have great submissions. And so we did wind up with 39 published articles. We had wonderful recipients that rose to the challenge and wanted their voices out there. So it really was great. I mean, big kudos to our recipients who, who came up and to fill these literature gaps that we have, building this practice wisdom-based evidence this was a great effort on their part. You know, it is, it is huge what they did and <laughs> they know it wasn't just one revision or two revisions sometimes, and they stuck with it and came through and learned a lot. And, and we already have a couple of teams ready to write their second manuscript, already contacting our teams, at, you know, in the translation team, you know, how can we do a second manuscript? So this is an exciting process and, and result to see. I think the other thing that I would add to Renee's comment, and, and thanks, Lanita and Renee, for your amazing comments and sharing the deep richness of the process and experiences and the voices of our recipients. Public health practitioners wake up every day thinking about who they can help through the work they've been assigned to do. They think about the people, they think about the practice, they think about the programs, they think about the policies, and they think about how do we make all this work with partnerships and et cetera. They never wake up thinking, I can't wait to publish my work. That's not, that's not what public health practitioners do. So that's what makes this, to Renee's point, that's and Renee's point, that's what makes this such a huge success. And just, a, just in the same way that we talk about access to healthier fruits and vegetables, access to physical activity, easier, safe, accessible physical activity, it's really about creating access to the publication process. And what you heard Lenita describe and the partnership that we had with Sophie and with the journal made access happen. It was a ramp 
that was easy to walk up. I couldn't put it better than you did. Thank you all so much for helping these folks along the way so that they could fill those gaps and be persistent through this manuscript process as they pivot, as you said, Terry, from their time as a daily practitioner to actually sit down and writing these papers, which requires access for them to feel and be successful in these spaces. And so I am so thankful to be able to share space and have a conversation with you all about this fantastic work and fantastic project that needs to continue and will continue. And so thank you so, so much for your time and expertise today. And thankfully, the full supplement with the CDC's Division of Nutrition and Physical Activity and Obesity is out there and it's presenting these accounts of projects designed to change policy systems or environments, those PSEs, to increase community access to healthy food and safe opportunities for physical activity. And they range in all different sizes. And so I'm so thankful to say that it is all free for folks to enjoy these supplements, the podcast papers. So please go out and read and enjoy them as I have. Thank you all so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure. Thanks, Arden. Thanks so much, Arden. Thank you, Arden. Thanks, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health dash promotion dash practice. Take care and have a great day.